HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network, broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes. Keep my big mouth shut. 
Welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am with Nick Adler uh, of Golden Voice, culinary director. Cap- for, for Coachella. For Coachella. Yeah. Director of uh, food for other festivals as well. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so you've been in the music game for a while. How many years have you been, been uh, working in shows and working in booking? Uh, I was born in 1973. And you were sort of born into it. And so I would say uh, that uh, June 10th, 1973. <laughs> um, you know, I had a lot of memories of of uh, waking up in the studio in the mm-hmm. middle of the night, getting put in a car, or being at a show and fall, falling asleep in a dressing room. Um, so definitely from very early on, since I was a baby, um, was something to do with, with music. Um, or studio or, or, or live shows. Um, and growing up, when music was around, was was food a big part of growing up, or did food come later into your life? Uh, it was really important, and I only know that because every time I tell my wife about some place that I've been to, uh, yeah. it's followed up with a food story. Um, so <laughs> it's funny when someone else points that out to you, when you think it's normal and yes. you're like, like, I didn't eat like that growing up. It's like, oh, food was always there. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, my, my, my dad started the Roxy in 1973 and, and, and also, um, was a partner in the rainbow, which was across the driveway. Mm-hmm. And I would get dropped off at school every day at you know, two or three o'clock, and then somebody would come pick me up, my dad, my mom, or someone at, at around six. So I had this three-hour time window where I would jump back and forth between the Rainbow Kitchen mm. uh, and the Roxy. So I was either trying to, like, jump my skateboard off the stage <laughs> at the Roxy or see how far I could throw pizza dough at the Rainbow. Um, so there was just that was that was... Uh, that was a lot of my youth was bouncing back between those two. So it seems like food and music has been a big part of your entire life. Yes, definitely. Definitely have been. Um, so let's jump a little bit further ahead, because uh, in a couple of weeks we have one of the world's, the world's biggest festival, Coachella. Yeah, definitely one of them. I would say top. I, I would say biggest in America mm-hmm. um, coming up, um, which is now known to have an equal food component to the music component. But before we get to that, I want to talk about the early days. Okay. And what was Coachella and the food scene like on site in 1999? Um, I think like most festivals, it, it, it was about 
the band on stage. So right. before even um, everything else was built out, it was chain link fences, porta potties, mm-hmm. um, a couple water stands, a burger place, a pizza place, and and the stage. and And I think all festivals, whether it was the US Festival or Live um, Live Aid or, or or Coachella, they all started in that place. And, it, and festivals were about the music. You know, yeah. my my dad um, did one of the very first music festivals Monterey Pop and uh, and the same thing went for that people came for the music they didn't there was no art component there was no 360 of a festival it wasn't just specific to food it was literally just there's one artistic endeavor we're here that's to right. see, and it's the music. That's right. And then that's that's changed over years with festivals like um, uh, Outside Lands mm, mm-hmm. really uh, showing that there was an importance of food at the festival. Coachella with the art, um, that was a huge component from, mm-hmm. from day one. It was a music and arts festival. Um, and I had gone to Coachella f- um, probably, uh, this is our 18th year, I've maybe missed two years, and I've only worked here for four, so the, most of the years I've been going to Coachella was as a fan. Yeah. And luckily I had insight to what that experience was. Um, as a fan. As a fan. Yeah. Right. And so you have the best location, you have the best art, you have the best bands in the world. Um, it just seemed like there was this component that was just sitting out there waiting for someone to do something with it. So what year did this um, culinary shift begin to start in the programming? And did you even look at it as programming or was just sort of simple start of we're just going to offer better food than just the sign that says pizza mm-hmm. or the sign that says corn dogs? Right. Uh, it, it all started actually with um, I went to a, a UCLA football game with Paul Tillett, the founder of Coachella. What year? Um, this was in two thousand, the fall of two thousand thirteen, mm-hmm. and uh, we were sharing a beer, and the conversation of beer came up, and and then I said, well, you know, I think Coachella could actually have a a beer program or or, or you know a selection. You know, I think at that time um, it was it was not that many choices, and I just felt like. And I try to always go back to music. So I was like, the craft beer scene is the music scene mm-hmm. in the 1980s. It's this, it's labels are popping up. People are um, signing on these craft breweries. Um, <laughs> they're collaborating with each other. They are marketing in a different way. It's, it's hot, you know, like yeah. it was a trend. And so that's how I tried to explain it to Paul was that there's something out there that's that's on the same track as music, but it, it has to do with, with culinary. And and then and that same conversation came up, um, you know, I think there's an opportunity to do something with the food. Um, so I went home that night and, uh, you know, wrote what maybe in my mind was like a manifesto of, mm. of, of how to integrate food and beverage into to Coachella. And he called me the next morning and asked me to come into the office and I came in and he said, these are my two partners and I, I met them. And, and then I walked out an hour later tasked with trying to, you know, start a food program at so, Coachella. So it seems like there, there wasn't any resistance or just, I guess around 2013, food had really, as far as the mainstream as like an art form into itself, was really in its, its blossom. Like it had really hit its stride. There's right. no denying that food was not this like, oh, we're really into food now, and then it was going to pass. Like, it was just booming. There was no stopping that. There was no stopping that. So how did you get started in – it's one thing – you write the manifesto, mm-hmm. you convince everyone, 
And yes, there's outside lands, but you know, there are also some other food festivals who will not be named that like tried and didn't do so well as having these like gourmet components. How did you start to think about implementing it and getting the, to be honest, the attendees to start changing their mind about the way they ate at festivals? Right. So, so at Coachella, uh, most of the people are always going to come for the music, you know, and I, I think that's going to be true to any festival that mm-hmm. started as a mu- music festival. So there, there's a company that we work with and they handle like this almost, they handle the food and beverage production, but they handle the festival vendors, the ones that go, the spicy pies, sure. the, the white guy pad thai, the ones that kind of travel from festival to festival, and you need that. And, and that's a core to feeding people because most people want a $7 piece of spicy, spicy pie that's humongous and it fuels them and they can keep going and they can do what yeah, they do. Yeah, sometimes when you're walking from state to stage, you don't want to like sit down and have a dinner. You want right. to grab the, the chicken so fingers. I was never trying to change the whole food program. What sure. I was trying to do is slowly take chunks of people out of that 100% and say, maybe there's 10% of the people that are looking for something different or 20%. And we've grown that number. Um, First year, uh, Chris from Night Market was a friend. Uh, Nick from Everly was a friend. Um, Church Key, the Casanori guys. I, I basically went to places that I had spent a lot of time with and I knew on a friend level, I could talk to them and, and, and kind of hoax them into coming out to the desert. I mean, he, I mean, here's the pitch, right? I'll get you whatever you need to Coachella. You can cook on site. How does that sound? They're just like, yes. Oh uh, no, that, no, they didn't like. That. No, it was very scary because I think <laughs> I think most people that you know, maybe not festival goers, but you go to a chef that spend most of his time in the kitchen, and you say Coachella, the desert, and so then they have this image of them um, cooking at Burning Man. Uh, yes. With this large thing yeah. driving by with a windstorm coming across them. And then they're trying to put out like this very kind of complicated dish. So that's – I had to get them out there and show them that 99% of the field was green. Polo that, grounds, that yeah. there was a, uh, a CVS down the street and, and, a, and we were – it was in a civilized place. Um but then we actually got them out there, and then all those things happened. The windstorm happened, and, and the oh, fryers didn't work. Right. And, um, you know, Tal from Crossroads is packing up Saturday morning, and Chris is packing up on, on Sunday morning and leaving. And, and it, was, uh, it, was, it was nothing short of a, of a disaster um, in year <laughs> one. Uh, but, but, but how was the response? I mean— so- And the response side, too, was—, was you. Anything like Coachella that's been going on for years or years or anything like that, um, change is going to take time because most of these festivals, most of these things that we go to that we're really used to enjoying, um, we we are creatures of habit. We go through the same entrance. We meet our friends at that same bar. We hit that same pizza mm-hmm. spot that we had that one night. So you have all these kind of repetitive behaviors sure. that happen. So how do you change that and then say here come have this uh, amazing kale caesar salad sure when there used to be like that's not my mindset is searching that out um or or quinoa or you know some of the things that we were even a burger that that was a little more expensive or a little more complicated those things just weren't on people's radar and it took a year of failure then it then it took understanding that we had to keep the chefs happy if we could get past that point then 
then then they would understand what kind of food to put out. You know, first year I said, I want you to bring your kitchen and exactly what you're putting on the table, I want you to put that out at Coachella. Right. Which, you know, again, like a kale Caesar now might be very different. I, you put out a kale Caesar salad just because yeah. it might happen. But, but three years ago, I know it sounds short, um, or four years ago, uh, there was just a – People didn't understand that at all. I don't disagree with you. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to talk about the follow-up years. We're going to talk about this year's festivals and the heavy hitters that you have coming. Uh, We have a live track from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Push my- 
Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I'm here with Nick Adler, food and beverage director for Coachella. And um, you had your first year. Mm-hmm. You worked out some of the kinks. Yep. Um, now it's 2014. How do you go into it programming? How do you go into it um, no, learning from your mistakes and, improve, and getting people more comfortable with the idea of having more gourmet food at the festival? I think that was an understanding, that, that idea of gourmet food or high-end food. Um, it didn't all have to be high-end food. Mm-hmm. It, it had to be the food that people were talking about, understanding trends in food. Um, you know, 2015, uh, I kicked myself that we didn't do poke that year. Right, because that was the poke explosion. Right, I missed it. Right, so I got it the next year. It was fine. It still did great. No one really knew, but I felt like it was my job to identify those trends and make sure that they were breaking um, at Coachella. You know, similar, and that's really? how I looked at the line. You know, Paul looks at the lineup. You have the bands that everybody knows. You know, the, you have uh, Radiohead. Sure, but then you got this this middle tier that that pretty much people feel consistent with. Uh, they they might go to it often, and then you have this discovery mode and. I and I felt that what a what a cool place to be in that that um, you know we could be part of that discovery the afters ice cream um, explosion of the you know warm donut with a with a crazy um, fruity pebble ice cream inside oh, yeah. um, or something like a sumo dog which which is this you know Japanese themed panko crusted hot dog topped with this Japanese explosion on top so uh it it was just understanding trends and then again it it, there was a lot of back of house things it was it was how do we interact with these chefs chefs are they're so into their four walls and yeah and they're they're they know where everything is and they're yes chef no chef um and 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 they were showing up in that first year and i was like i don't know chef um, and which they don't ever want to hear, right? And and then uh, even worse than that, uh, a real no chef. I'm you, sorry, chef. Yeah. No. Uh, yes, exactly. And especially those types of guys, and because you know you had heavy hitters from the LA scene from the get go. It wasn't just you know nobodies who were coming in and just had restaurants. No, it was like, Joseph Centeno in that, yeah. that very first year. They care about their food. Like, and that's, I think, one of the things that when you work enough as chefs, you like, no matter the situation, if they're putting their name out there and putting a dish out, they want it to be the best dish possible. And it should be. And it should be. So, um, what type of changes for the back of the house did you make? Did you start bringing in the kitchens? Did you start sort of... Uh, just like analyzing like what dishes work, what didn't work. Did you help them curate their menus? Yeah, to, to guide them to success. I think a little bit of all of that. Um, you know, just quickly on the on the on the back of house side, it was more staff understanding how to load them in properly, getting them in a day early. They they just weren't fast. Um, they didn't move quickly like a festival vendor comes in. They could probably show up two hours before and be pumping out hundreds of thousands of pizza within like a, a couple hours where where these these restaurant chefs took a little bit of time. So understanding the pace of things, giving them more time, giving them more support, dedicating people to them. And then um, as far as the menus, um, paring them down, getting them away from six, seven items down to two featured items, a featured item and two or three sides, uh, showing them like Putting a burger for twenty three dollars on the menu is only, no matter how great that burger is, is just a disconnect at a festival. Sure, um, that doesn't mean that a 
that a $16 burger, when you add bacon, avocado, and truffles, and it becomes a $50 burger, that works. for some, right. for some Not for everybody, but what I'm saying is it was this perception of coming up and that that's I'm just not going to touch a twenty three dollar burger, but they actually walked away paying twenty four for you know some, something similar. Yeah, um, and have you now seen a few years in the shift from both the concert goers and the chefs? Yes, completely. There's a anticipation for the food program. Um, there's an understanding that that someone's actually going through and and curating this this chef lineup. Um, and and I think people get excited for that. Um, there's these restaurants. You know what what we've tried to do this year is not only look at Southern California, um, but we've pulled some in from from New York. Uh, we have a Miami crew. We have some chefs coming from Chicago. We got Paul Kahn. Yeah, exactly. You, I mean that is awesome. Uh, but before we talk about the chefs coming this year, yeah, um, you've even raised the game even more. Uh, with your partnership with Outstanding in the Field. Right. Um, can you talk about how that partnership started and what the uh, what the experience is like? We were trying to find a way to do a sit-down restaurant um, at Coachella, and, and just running the models... Uh, there was we just didn't know how to do it and there was there was the the failure rate was too high and i was trying to not to fail so in in my search um i found outstanding in the field and this winding table um it's amazing linens glassware the opposite of what every experience i ever had at a festival was and how can i mix these two things and put this beautiful table well-known chefs winemakers and then none of that even mattered the conversation at the table uh, a 22 and a 23 year old couple sitting across from a 40 40 year old couple one was from this part of the country this one was this then they start talking. They pour each other a glass of wine. Mm. They're sharing the, the the beautiful salad from the farmer down the street, and they realize that there's four or five bands that they they love, that they have these connections, and then they become friends for life. Yeah. And for me, food was always about bringing people together at a table and having conversation and 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 creating those relationships that last forever. And that's what I think we were trying to do with Outstanding in the Field. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I don't want to say the food and the chefs and the wine is a bonus, but, but you know, you remember those moments, but friendship and that time you spent at the table is yeah. something that's going to last forever. I remember the meal that I had at Turin on site at Coachella. Uh-huh. And that moment of sitting down while the music's coming from you all sides yeah. at a festival was so special and unique um, that that's one of my favorite concert moments ever because... It was so unexpected. How, how how could your favorite concert moment have to do with sitting down at Turin at a? At a it's crazy. I know like, it's crazy. I mean, but that's the thing. And so even when the year rolls around and the lineup is announced, um, I know people are equally, at least from like a festival goer and like a media media side, they now expect like a solid lineup for chefs. I know. Like it's know. it's you've you've uh, I don't want to say victim of your own success, but now it's like. Oh, who are we bringing this year? Um, so who are you bringing this year? Uh, in Outstanding in the Field or just in general? Um, we can talk about Outstanding in the Field and then we can talk about um, the chefs as well. So Outstanding in the Field, um, 
you know, we have some serious LA favorites like Neil Frazier, uh, um, Nicole and his brother Arjun, Bruce Kalman, uh, Perry from Forage, uh, Naisha, Dakota. Yeah, you have a whole like power woman. Yeah, like- I always, you know what? It's, I, I, I want to, I, it is intentional and I, I, I don't want it to be on one night. I, I honestly wish that it was peppered throughout sure. the entire thing. I just, um, Scheduling. Scheduling, and we need, you know, we need to empower, you know, we need to make sure that we're integrating, the, you know, that these lineups are looking equal. There there are just as many great female chefs as there are men chefs. Absolutely. But for some reason, you know, I got to stick three of them on one night. So um, It happens. Um, so uh, I know the, con- the festival sold out, but can you still get tickets – through you the can, outstanding in the field, that's that's actually the biggest secret for people who are inside knowledge of food. Yeah, and and I, I think we did that because it was actually it's been pretty funny. Is the a couple years we we forgot to like bundle. We forgot to like make sure that you had a ticket to outstanding in the field. <laughs> right. So we get this like radio call. Uh, yeah, we have a group of four at the front gate for outstanding in the field, and they actually bought tickets to outstanding in the field, but had did didn't really want to go to Coachella, and so they never bought the Coachella oh ticket, but they just bought the outstanding in the field dinner. And there was, and oh. and so there was just a you know a thought that maybe we could do something great for people is if they really saw a dinner or something yeah. that they liked. Um, that they had access to to get in, and so we were able to do a cool bundle with the tickets. And the only way to get Coachella tickets through us is is to buy an outstanding in the field dinner, and and then you could purchase passes with that. I mean, which is very awesome and very cool for anyone who. And the at bonus is probably one of the best meals you're ever going to get, I not think just so. at a festival. Yeah. Um, the last um, point I want to touch on, and this is one of the things. Uh, and reading more about the festival and things like that is um, is that look you're out in the desert you're out in the field you're bringing everything in everything out, um, but sustainability is a big thing for you guys. Yes. Um, how do you bring sustainability in your approach to food and 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 what programs are you looking to do so that it's a you know sort of pack in pack out waste as little as possible? Right. Uh, some people say that their festival is a green festival. I, I've heard that term, or it's a it's a sustainable festival. Just. That is not a true statement. <laughs> Bringing 100,000 people or 10,000 people to a certain area and trucks and cars and everything that gets them there, and then they they eat a lot of food and there's a lot of waste, Like that is not sustainable. But what we can do is make sure that at every point we're doing what we can. So we have a, a, a solid composting program, um, which is very tough to do in the desert yeah. with with the things that come along with composting and flies and, you know, just just the, yeah. the, that. Um, also, um, everyone buys their small wares through the festival. And so we give a catalog where everything is compostable. Everything um, is is something that we can break down. And we handle, the, you know, we have an internal, um, what we call a resource department, which is our trash um, and recycling. And everything is done through us. And we break it down and then we bring it to um, a place that then the trucks come and pick it up. So, uh, again, it's, it's festivals are not sustainable. They're not green. But you can look at different points of the process and make sure that you're doing everything you can to li- limit the impact. Yeah. Well, Nick, congratulations. Thank this you. This is so awesome. As a, 
first music fan. Well, I guess I've been in love with food and music my whole life, but I just didn't realize how much I love food. I knew I loved music. Yep. It sounds like you did too. And then, uh, same place. Same and then, place. then you realize, oh, wait, I really love food. Uh, I appreciate what you were doing, what you guys are doing. I'm very excited to, to eat my fill <laughs> at Good. the festival this year. Uh, for everyone who is still looking for a way into the festival, do yourself a favor. Get on these dinners. Yes, for sure. It, it's I've done it. It is one of the best things you can do at a festival, and um, you don't. It, it's it's weird because you don't realize how much you're like you're facing the stage and listening to music and dancing, which is awesome. But to add in the mo- this component where you're actually going to meet strangers and talk to them just brings this whole rounded experience. Well, I also think that's the difference between a concert and a festival. Absolutely. And uh, I think we're helping change the way that people festival. Exactly. As a, as a verb. Exactly. It's a real, like, full experience. 360. 360 experience. Um, Coachella.com is the website. Yep. Instagram. Where can people see any of the food pics? I know we're going to be posting some. Uh, I, I think uh, they're, they're going to be out everywhere. Um, there'll be some on our Instagram. And then uh, on the Coachella uh, website, we'll also have a page dedicated to uh, – it's already up as far as Outstanding in the Field yeah. Chefs. And, and then all the restaurants will be on there as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We have another – uh, thank you. We have another live uh, song from the archives on Snacky Tunes, and then a live performance coming up in the second half of the show here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. solo
Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine, and how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. What better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I'm here with Lou and Ben, who make up Winston's. Welcome, boys. Thanks. Thank you. Really good to have you in Very the studio. Very glad to be here. Yeah. So uh, how did you make it to Brooklyn from Virginia? Um, I, uh, By car, I-95 <laughs> North. Okay. okay. Yeah. I, did you uh, stop? Did you take any scenic routes? Yeah, I think we stopped at uh, Walt Whitman. On the New Jersey Turnpike? Yeah, it's my favorite. Yeah, did you go direct? Did you, some people will... I mean, it's not much of a road trip, but did you turn any of it into a road trip? Uh, we have. We've done that corridor a, a lot. A lot. What's the secret? Uh, Timing. Go fast. <laughs> not hit the beltway in D.C. around rush hour. That'll add three hours. Okay, fair. That's pretty practical. I uh, Moving up here, I had, used to have a Ford Ranger pickup, and I totally... Tortoise shell, or like I looked like a snail. I pretty much had everything I owned and was bringing and just put like three tarps over it and totally Beverly Hillbilly styled it with duct tape and tarps and everything I owned under it and moved up here in a day and got here at like midnight. And what brought you up here or what, what forced you out of Virginia? Um, I, uh, I met a girl playing a show up here and decided I was gonna move classic, to New York. Classic City. story, where's the girl? She's at home right now. Oh, really? Yeah, with her two stepcats. Oh, okay. Is she with you? Uh-huh. Oh, amazing. That story doesn't... <laughs> I mean, I feel like the New York stories, you're like, met a girl, where's a girl? Doesn't matter. Ben, how's your girl? What happened to her? I have the same exact story. Oh, really? Yeah. So you both met girls that... Was that the same show, or was it different well, show? okay. Yeah, not the same exactly. No, we were okay. playing with different people. We didn't know each other until we lived in Brooklyn. Oh, okay. But we were living in the so, same city in yeah, Virginia. we spent a long time in Are the you same both from Virginia? I was born and raised in Richmond. Okay. Yeah. I grew up in New Hampshire and then lived in Virginia for 10 years. So did the band form because you had uh, similar partner stories, or how did you guys get together? I think we were both kind of starting over in terms of uh, music, having relocated here by ourselves independently. Because you have, you have two different backgrounds, right? Lou, you're into country and bluegrass, and Ben, you've got jazz horn? Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's how I, I grew up. I learned how to play music playing tenor saxophone. Okay. Um, so drums is still an indomitable task for me, but it I mean, came really, easy after like doing like those kind of chord changes and trying to solo over it. I was like, oh, I get to hit things now? Great. I mean, you've, you've paired it down to a, a snare, some a brass, a, a tambo, mm. and a kick drum. <laughs> yeah, there's still metal involved. There's still metal on board. And how did you, uh, how were you convinced to put down the the sax and, and pick up the stick oh it's easier to play with people uh and that's kind of what happened with us it was like hey you want to jam sometime and then it worked really well and made us both happy so uh yeah no one was like <laughs> begging for a sax player and uh in a brooklyn band uh no 
And then for you, you I mean, for your background of uh, country I, and bluegrass. I grew up uh, playing cello and guitar when I was little. And then uh, picked up banjo as a teenager and then got paid for the first time to play music, playing banjo, being like a banjo sideman. What, what was the gig? Uh, it was um, uh, a guy I knew in college who had a band um, asked me to join his buddy's band. Filling it out with like a fiddle player and a banjo player. Was it a Dave Matthews or Bella Fleck cover band? No, it wasn't. It was pretty uh, traditional, pretty old. There's a huge uh, amount of. I mean, that's uh, we were in Charlottesville, which is like kind of Appalachia adjacent, and uh, everybody grew up playing, and all their daddies play, and all their granddaddies play, and there's so many unbelievable musicians around there. Um, and there's every corner bar has a like a crackerjack bluegrass band. Got it. What was it? Do you remember the name of the band? Uh, the first time I ever I got paid forty dollars to play in Joe Mama's pajamas one night at the Gravity Lounge. Wow. Yeah, it wasn't my band. I didn't I didn't name it. I didn't sing. The Gravity Lounge is now a CVS. In case you're curious, I am. That's sad. Yeah. That's sad. <laughs> Common tale. Yes, it is. Uh, and how long did you play uh, the banjo before you kind of swapped over to a guitar and started writing your own music? Um, I formed a band probably two or three years after that. Um, and started uh, writing songs and playing songs I'd written. Uh, um, still playing banjo and doing kind of a heavier rock and roll, mountain rock and roll type thing. And then... Uh, what, started, mountain, what is mountain rock and roll? It was something we made up because it was bluegrass with drums and electric guitars. And uh, but um, and then just got uh, pr- kind of just tired of playing uh, bluegrass um Got, got tired of playing banjo. Just got really... Wasn't good enough to be nuts about it. Wasn't that super into the really technical stuff. Uh, and just was had always grown up playing guitar. Was more comfortable with it. So after getting paid to play banjo for a while, I figured maybe I could just play guitar cause, and do more with it. What is the most surprising thing about playing banjo that an uninitiated person wouldn't know that makes it so difficult or hard to master? It's just so much uh, right hand. It's so much uh, finger picking. I mean, you can play it a bunch of different ways. And a lot of people do really... There's like claw hammer and there's three finger style and and uh, some people just strum it or play it like a guitar. Uh, I was really into Lester Flat and doing the three finger style and it just I used to just sit literally sit on the couch with the TV remote in my left hand and just do rolls with my finger picks with my right hands for hours and hours and hours. It's just muscle memory. Okay. Building that up. Can we hear a song? Yeah. yeah. What are you guys gonna play for us first? This is called uh, Enough. It's uh, the B side of a seven inch we put out February seventeenth on Warhan Records and Grand Jerry Records. Great. Here live on Snacky Tunes.
should be enough Love should be enough question that you guys sent over to me before the show. Salad. What's the deal? What's the deal with salad? What's the deal with salad? You put everything in it these days. I know. I think it's just they uh, everybody's trying to get rid of bread, so they're just making big sandwiches and calling them salads. They're just like, um, this is a salad. You're like, it's yeah. a pound and a half. I think you've got you've missed the point. Yeah. It's a, as long as you leave the bread out. It's, it's fine. Salad. It's just salad. So you work over at Greenpoint Fish and Lobster. I do. I, I waited tables over there. You so stay open. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Uh huh. Those boys are great. We've they worked are. with them in the past. It's a great uh, what, institution. What is a, a fan favorite over there of yours? What and what is probably one of the more underrepresented uh, menu items? The fish sandwich with French fries. It's the best. It's killer. It's the best. I feel like it's one of the best deals in uh, in Greenpoint. Uh, yeah, it's certainly not the thriftiest thing happening. Other than but, a uh, dollar Jello shot at Capri Lounge, fine. Ooh, that, yeah, okay. That, I mean, I think we're I think we're in two different worlds yeah. at that point. Yes, nothing could be. Th- <laughs> Actually, uh, my friend had a birthday a surprise birthday party there, uh, and just cleared out the Jello shots, and it was like twenty two bucks, and everyone was just done. They make for the best mornings. Yeah, I mean, I just I I can't believe like you the drink them in the morning. Is that what you mean? Like you put it in your next pocket. Morning. The next yeah, like just, sure. it's, it's like a to go. It's the only to go type of cup you can get. Bathtub of jello shots. Bathtub of jello shots. I mean, I wonder where in the um, hierarchy of Capri are you making jello shots? Is it mm, at the yeah. beginning? Like is that, or you work your way up because it's such a backbone iconic uh, staple there? It's like no, no, no. Only Samantha makes the jello shots. Uh, I mean, sure. I think it'd be a lauded position is the 6 p.m. slurp. Whoever gets a taste test, that that jungle juice. <laughs> oh, 
don't know. I watched uh, cro- most of Crocodile Dundee in there the other night with commercial breaks. <laughs> I mean, the place, if you haven't been, it's probably one of the, like, the last havens of uh, best dive bars in, in Greenpoint. That's a good one. There's a couple. Kanio's is mine, if you've ever been there. Ah, I've never, where's that? It's right around the corner from me. It's oh, no, under Norman. his house. It's in the basement. It's pretty much under my it's, house. It's, it's the sign outside my bedroom door. Yes. It's called Kanio's. It's terrific. Yeah. Uh, if you go there, say hey to Barbara for me. Or Lou said hey, hello. I'll, I'll tell her myself. You guys have a recording project in the financial district. Yeah, we were there all day yesterday. Uh, what's the setup and, and why the financial district? Um, uh, a friend of ours who's a, a producer had been uh, had taken an interest in what we were up to next. And uh, we said, let's work with, with you in his uh, room. It's called uh, Full Tone Studios and it's on Fulton. No, I, you didn't F. have to say that. No, we got it. But for, I guess for the, for the people not in New York, yeah, uh, it's oh. fun down there. It's it's interesting. I got into yeah. the I got into the elevator yesterday at noon with an eighteen pack of Miller Lite, and all the construction dudes were in there, and and I was like I couldn't find the door to the basement, and they were like, oh, come to the elevator. I walk in, the door closes, and they push ten, <laughs> <laughs> and then they all just cracked up at my expense. Eh, you know, it's worth it. And is it? I mean, is it one of those things like before five you can't really do anything, but after five it's just kind of no no noise problems, no nothing. It's uh, it's in the basement. There, I don't think there's much down there except for uh, they have a couple uh, mouser cats in the hallways. Yeah, but there's not much going on otherwise. But it's just uh, it's just a, a big room. We're a two piece, so we, we like to. Use all the air, try not to like segment too much. We don't need a lot of space, but uh, we were there for ten hours yesterday tracking for. What are you guys working on? Um, we just always keep working. Uh, we uh, we so we just put out a seven inch. We're thinking our next project is probably going to be a full length. Um, so we just did a day in the studio, and we don't know what we have yet. Um, but we'll see, and just keep every couple of weeks we'll uh, book some studio time. And the seven inch came out, and you mentioned it before, in Grand Jury and Warhand Records. So, uh-huh. how did you hook up with them, and why? Uh, why a seven inch? Uh, uh, we had two songs that we really liked, <laughs> so we put it on a piece of wax. Uh, yeah, Warren is Luke's buddy from Charlottesville for a long time. Real good dude. He used to do um, production at uh, the Jefferson, which is like the biggest. Uh, it's a big theater the, down there. Yeah, it's nice. nice. And he has this uh, boutique seven inch label. So we were we had been touring. We did two uh, southern trips last summer, touring, and we were coming back from one and booked some studio time at a small studio where I used to live that a buddy of mine runs. And uh, so we just went in and recorded for two days because we uh, before we came back to New York, and then uh, started sending those tracks around. He wanted to put it on a seven inch and then we and Grand Jury wanted to put it out. Digitally. Yeah, Craig and Robbie saw us uh, open for Esme Patterson at Mercury Lounge and we're like, hey. And we went mm-hmm. on we went on tour with her later that summer. Um, and so Texas, you're like, New Orleans, hey again. Yeah. yeah, we said, hey back. It was super convenient. The, the run yeah. started in Dallas. Oh, okay. At some point someone so. said, yo, <laughs> or sup. Sup. And then they just like slid a piece of paper with a shot of bur- two shots of bourbon <laughs> next to it, and that's how it goes. Yeah. That's how it goes. Yeah. Can we hear another song? Plied. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. What are you going to play for us? Uh, it's a song called Heaven's Full of Mules. We haven't uh, put it out yet, but we've tracked it and probably will put it out. Perfect. Not too long. Okay, here live on Snacky Tunes.
Selling off my days To pay for more That are still in store For me I'll punch the clock tomorrow before my boss Who can take away my needed pay if she wants I've heard how lucky I am making honest wage not worth a damn to anyone just enjoying Winston's are quoted as saying, wearing the band t-shirt to the band is a new power move. Explain. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's my friend, Najler. She's a gym. We've had a couple of those. We like it. Um, yeah. It's undoing years, years 
uh, of the opposite. Right. Uh, no, we got a buddy, Fernando, who came to our release show. And by the time we started, with the first time those T-shirts were available, he had purchased one, put it on, and was in the front row. Better story about Fernando, not to one, try and one-up you, is that <laughs> on New Year's Eve, Fernando proposed to his lady during our set. She said yes. Congratulations, yeah. Fernando. Was he wearing the but shirt? But he was by himself <laughs> at the... No, he didn't have the shirt yet. But <laughs> he was by himself when he had the shirt. But I think they're still... I don't know. I mean, January's not that... It's not that far away. It's a really... It's not that far. <laughs> no. Not that far. No, I th- yeah, I think all is well. Yeah. But he... Uh, yeah, that is the new power move. We're buying the brand new band t-shirt, putting it on, and going to the front row. Just so, so they know that you're a fan. Not just because you're there, but you're there right. for them. Yes. Right. It does feel good. Yeah. <laughs> it's it, undeniable. It definitely feels good, especially if, you, if you're not the headliner. So they know that they came for oh, you. Yeah. yeah. Boy, like, do we love better. not being the headliner. We were, we were headlining that night, though, Oh, okay. Unfortunately. Apologies. Yeah. So just Fernando, the t-shirt. We should have not headlined our own release show. That would have been the real power move. That is a real power. Actually, that is a real power move. Maximum humility. I think you play, you play second to last. So you're the, you're the peak. That's cool. And then you have and then uh, someone else the after plays. party. That's the after party. Mm. That's We've a, had that move before, haven't we? I don't know. How many releases have you had? Three. As many as I can get. Three. Yeah. Oh, in uh, Clear Plastic Masks. <laughs> Our first tape, we had an after party. It was Clear Plastic Masks. Okay. We were arguably the support for that. For your own release party. (laughs) Okay. That's fine. So now you're tracking, but uh, any tours coming up, uh, hitting the road? We're going back down to Virginia at the end of this month uh, and playing some shows down there. Yeah, we're going to go play our buddy uh, Gold Connections release at uh, the Southern in Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. Playing with some of our stuff around there. They're going to release on Fat Possum. Yeah. And we're going down there for that, and we're going to be in Jersey, right? And. Yeah, Jersey. Philadelphia. Philadelphia. All the dirty towns. Yeah, Jersey, Philly. Not Probably Harrisonburg again. Harrisonburg, Virginia. Richmond, Virginia. We played a wonderful open mic in Harrisonburg. Uh, were you booked ago. in? Were you booked in for the open mic, <laughs> yeah. or did you just stop by? We were special guests. On uh, the, on we had the, a night the, off, but then we uh, we ended up we got paid and fed and it was drank. It was. I mean, maybe I don't understand the concept of open mic, but um, how did you get booked a, for an open mic? Uh, there, were, it was open. But, you know, other other random people. No, somebody dropped out, right? And then we hopped on. We were we had a night off on the road. We had nothing better to do, and something fell in our lap. We took it. It it, it was great. I think it was the best show I've ever played. Ever, ever. It's the best. It's the best open mic you've ever played. Harrisonburg, Virginia, Clementines. Yeah, best open mic. No, it was uh, Ruby's. It was downstairs. Ruby's is downstairs, and it's it's now a Dwayne Reed. (laughs) No, tell me that. Um. Well, I want to get one last question in, or more of a statement before you guys take us out. Mm-hmm. Sent from the band, eggs, <laughs> they're just not for <laughs> breakfast anymore. Disgust. I eat eggs for every meal. Yeah. And my cholesterol yeah. is happy. I, uh, yeah, when I, I'll get a dozen eggs and I'll like hard boil half of them and just save them in the fridge for... Just because? Just a quick, healthy I mean, snack. You put, put an egg on anything, man. Right? You could. You could put an egg on anything. You could put it on a salad. Put it on a salad. Ice cream. You could call this egg by itself a salad. Yeah, you could. The classic trump card for you can put something on anything is ice cream. And vanilla ice cream with an egg on top, I think, with some salt would be really good. Wow. Okay. Egg Next. ice cream. <laughs> egg ice cream. Breaking boundaries. Well, uh, <laughs> you guys wait. <laughs> we're going to make sure you guys have time for one more song. Uh, where can people find you? Get the 7-inch. Find out updates. Catch you on tour. Catch Winston, you at open mics. Winston's band 
everything at dot com www yeah everything's Winston's band there's an s in there that people can't hear Winston's Winston's band dot com slash Winston's band perfect uh, and no article never ever an article no the <laughs> or uh that's just inappropriate uh, yeah it's inappropriate yeah well I mean it would or counteract these. we could be can- these Winston's these Winston's it would counteract all rooms of grammar and That's leave one of you out uh, from now on we shall be known as these Winston's that's pretty good band.com <laughs> uh, what are you gonna take us out with uh, this is a song uh, can you mildly curse on this yes it's called goddamn goodbye you're fine uh, well thanks to everyone for being on the show today We'll be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes. Take us out. Thanks so much, listeners. Uh, yeah, there's a new one. We haven't put it out anywhere yet, I don't think. But we will. We will. We're putting it out right now. Out of the universe.
We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.